If I look back on my career, there are some disappointments, particularly following what I'd done as a schoolboy. I think I wasn't as successful at test cricket as I people expected to me and as I thought I should have been. And it was partly due to that impetuosity, I think, and, mm. and maybe not respecting the opposition bowlers enough. He said that the secret of teaching is to light the inextinguishable flame. And it's, that's a beautiful mm. encapsulation of what teaching's about. And it's as much capturing their imagination as it is expounding what's in a textbook. Paul Sheehan played 31 test matches for Australia between 1967 and 1974, making two test centuries, as well as scoring almost 4,000 runs for Victoria at a stunning average of 59.52. He surprised everyone by retiring from cricket at the age of just 27 to take up a senior teaching position and would go on to become one of Victoria's top educators, serving as headmaster at several of the state's most prestigious private schools. He would also serve the Melbourne Cricket Club on the committee for an incredible 28 years, including a four-year term as club president. A talented, stylish batsman and brilliant fieldsman, with looks, voice and a way with words to match. It might surprise some to know that Paul's journey had a very humble beginning. I'm Anthony Hudson, and today at the G, a familiar and much admired figure to many MCC members. Well, he's been a test cricketer, an educator of much esteem, and an MCC president. He rode his bike in today to join us at the G. It's great to have Paul Sheen with us. Welcome, Paul. Uh, thanks very much, Anthony. Yeah, look, it's amazing how your reputation increases once you've given things up. I'm very impressed with that introduction. <laughs> no, I don't think I need to enhance it. There's so much you've achieved. It's been a strange year, hasn't it? How have, how have you gone? Yeah, weird year. Very challenging year. I've been on this uh, planet for 74 years and I've never experienced anything like it before. Weird, and I haven't envied kids at school actually. The one thing that kept you in teaching was seeing kids achieve and actually watching them achieve. They haven't actually been at school, most of them, for nine months or so, and it'll be really interesting to see the change in them, see what they've absorbed through online learning and all those sorts of things. It's uh, it has been very challenging, and I've my heart's gone out to staff who've had to learn a completely different modality. And that hasn't been easy for them either. We're here now looking out over the MCG. Does it still bring back wonderful memories and great feelings to you? Oh, it does, yeah. It's the third great cathedral in this city, isn't it? I mean, 
people flock to this in numbers that uh, both the Anglicans and the Catholics would be very proud of. <laughs> um, but it's funny, you know, the, there's probably about 60 metres of fencing that's the only thing left from when I played cricket here. The rest of it, the, the ground surface, the grandstands, everything has changed. But it still retains that mystical aura and it's um, fully understandable that people who love cricket, love footy, want to come to the G. It's a big challenge, isn't it, that for modern administrators uh, to update stadiums and still retain their character. And I think of the Adelaide Oval as a fantastic example who have done that. And, and here, and I know previously haven't spoken to, to Stephen Goff, when the redevelopment was done here, there was, there was some opposition, to the, as, there, as there probably naturally would be because of the tradition of what was here before. But it has retained so much, albeit in a, in a much more modern fashion. Yes, it has. Uh, it hasn't quite retained the architectural uh, attraction that, say, Sydney or Adelaide have, but there is something about the MCG. I mean, playing the first ever test match here, first Aussie football match in the paddock outside, etc., etc. Just, you can't buy that. It just resides here, irrespective of what you do with the stands or the ground surface itself. Take us back to where it all started for you then, Paul. You grew up in Werribee? <laughs> I did, yeah. I had my first eight and a half years in Werribee. And uh, actually, funnily enough, I went back the other day. I'd, now that the bypass road's in, you don't often go through the old town. Uh, I drove past the house where we used to live, or at least I thought it was the house where <laughs> we used to live. It's gone. It's now a pair of townhouses. And I, I just thought my brother and I should have bought that place and... You don't make a shrine of it, but uh, just there's so much of your heart and soul in the place where you're born. Um, Yeah, there's some nasty things go into Werribee, but there's some very good things come out of it, as I'd like to say. Was it a a happy sporting childhood? Yeah, look, my my father was obsessed with sport, uh, as were his two brothers, and they were both pretty good, and they were... Oh, not quite legends around Werribee, but very well known in sporting circles, both cricket and footy. And uh, so I gained the first love of sport through my father uh, and particularly his next brother, who, uh, funnily enough, is Mike Sheehan's father. Um, and from there it just developed. Because my father was, he was a sort of, could have been in a way, uh, but wanted to be and was so sort of obsessed with the games, all games, that he used to read every textbook there was. And he'd, because my older brother was not quite so gifted in ball sports, all his energy was channelled into me. So I spent endless hours out in the backyard with him trying to teach me how I should be playing, particularly cricket. And and was that something you appreciated or did did you you think, oh, it was too much? Um, At... As I got older, I probably used to squirm a little bit when I was probably 15, 16 playing sport at school because uh, they never, my mother and father, never missed a beat. And at times you just, you sort of hankered after being left alone and trying to make it on your own rather than have them eternally easing the passage. Because I think there wouldn't be a great, sportsman on the face of the earth who hasn't had to work their way through a, a reversal at some stage. Mm. And, you know, I always had someone there with a safety net and I'm not sure that's the best way of developing that that inner fire that means you, you know, 
you're, you're actually, you can project yourself out of the ordinary. So do you, do you think that affected you from a cricket performance point I, of view? Yeah, I think so. I think it made me a bit bewildered when I sort of got to the top level and wasn't quite as successful as I perhaps hoped to be. Um, anyway, look, you make the most of what you've got, I guess, and you'd, one thing you don't do is get your time over again. So uh, uh, you just try and work your way through it to your advantage. And, and where was school? Well, at that stage I was at the Werribee Primary School. Uh, then my father, quite strangely, had been um, had gone from Werribee, where he was born, to the Geelong College in Geelong. He was the, the only one of the three brothers who went to a private school. It never quite worked out why. His parents were very poor. Don't know how he afforded it. Anyway, he had this burning desire to send the three of us, my oldest sister, then next brother and me, to schools in Geelong. So he left uh, the that branch of the public service he was working in, the Treasury Office, and uh, took a job in the, the newly formed licensing court based in Geelong, working for Neil Fraser's father, as it oh. turned out. Um, so we went to Geelong when I was sort of midway through grade four. Uh, I went to the local primary school, then somehow or other won a scholarship and went to Geelong College for the next, whatever it was, seven years. And was that a, a, a good experience oh, for Oh, fantastic, you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, looking back on it, I, I'm sure we were taught by some pretty dodgy teachers, really. <laughs> uh, but it was in the era where you did what you were told and the authority figures were lords and masters and that was it. Uh, they would never have got away with how they tried to behave these days. Kids are test you out a hell of a lot more than we ever did. But it, it was a great time. I met some fantastic young blokes. I uh, have teammates from cricket and footy, particularly in those days, that I still see. And, and It was a time I look back on very favourably. And then, of course, I had the good fortune to be offered the job as principal later on. Did you get a sense of what you wanted to do away from sport at that stage? Did you think you were going to be a teacher and go down the education path then? Funnily enough, I didn't really give teaching a lot of consideration, even though I enjoyed schools. And I think if you don't enjoy schools and you go back as a teacher, that must be hell. But I did enjoy schools. So when I got to a sort of midway through year 12, I actually thought I might want to study the law. But my parents were not wealthy. I had to leave Geelong and come and live in Melbourne if I wanted to go to university. I then sort of thrashed around and finally discovered a a teaching studentship, as it was called in those days, uh, which put you through university, through the primary degree you wanted to do, plus a year dip ed, as long as you tied yourself to the education department for three years, which I happily did. Had you come to the cricket with your, with your father? At yeah, time? the first inkling I remember of having come to the MCG was in 1954-5, and you might remember the Englishman were here then. Typhoon Tyson was rampant. I must have been about seven, I guess. We drove up uh, in a clapped-out old Vauxhall. I was wonder we ever got here, but we did. We bought lunch on the way, arrived at the G, settled in for a magnificent day's cricket, and blow me down if Tyson hadn't ripped the heart out of the Aussies with 7 for 27 and the game was all over by lunchtime. So we, we sort of sat there stunned and uh, crept off home mid-afternoon. But 
I, uh, I remember seeing Peter May batting, Brian Statham bowling, Jim Laker, and you just thought to yourself, you, you're in a different world here, and it's a world that where so many doors open and so many opportunities are offered to you if you're any good. So I guess I um, might that might have been tucked away in the back of my mind with the idea that that would be a pretty good thing to do if mm. you were ever given the opportunity. Okay, so when did you start getting an inkling that, that you could make it in, in Test cricket? What was the, your pathway from your junior years to, to make it to, to play for Victoria, first of all? Yeah, well, my father, as I said, was obsessed with cricket and had me out in the backyard endlessly teaching me technique. But I remember playing uh, a game when I was probably nine uh, and I can still feel the feeling through the hands of hitting a square cut off the front foot that I think went like a bullet. Uh, and I thought, that's pretty good. That feels really good. And I thought then uh, cricket is a game that I really love. So I guess I uh, most of the decisions I made along the way were based on how I was going to make my way playing cricket. And I had a pretty golden run really when I was a bit older at school I played in the uh the what was called Darling Shield which was an under 16 competition I played actually with Hawthorne East Melbourne made a few runs and again enjoyed it and one of the dearest blokes I ever met a fellow called Clive Fairbairn who was a committee man here and probably the backbone of the cricket section for decades convinced me that I should go and play Premier Cricket, as it's now called, with Melbourne. And so my time at Melbourne started and I had one game in the seconds, got an 80-odd over at the Punt Road Oval and I got projected up to the ones from there on and uh, and away it went. And I managed to be pretty successful and about 12 months after I'd left school, uh, I got the nod from the Victorian selectors and I, I couldn't believe it. I just started at university, and um, it was it was a sensational thrill to it, the Englishmen are out here. Uh, it was a sensational thrill to just be rubbing shoulders with these people. You sort of walk into the dressing room and you look around, and you see these people you've seen on television and heard spoken about on the radio, and uh, I thought I was in heaven. Did the the path continue to be relatively smooth? Uh, yes, it did. I. In my uh, first Shield match, we played New South Wales, and, and I remember Bill Laurie winning the toss. It was 100 degrees on the old scale at 9 o'clock in the morning, and it was still 100 at 9 o'clock that night. And the Phantom won the toss and put New South Wales in. <laughs> and But at the end of day one, it was only five and a half hours cricket, they were three for 454. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> How long's this game been going on? Uh, but I managed to get 60 in the first dig and then got winkled out by Peter Philpott in the second innings for not very many. Uh, but I then made 100 in my second game against South Australia. And so you sort of began to understand what you needed to do if you were going to be reasonably successful. And I had a fairly good run. And about 18 months after that, I was lucky enough to get a call as you did in those days to say you've been picked to play for Australia when the Indians were out here in 67, 68 and it was a, 
again, it was one of those dream things. And in those days, your equipment used to arrive by post. So you'd get your blazer and a couple of jumpers and a couple... In those days, you got a couple of caps every series. My mother had to tell me to take the cap off when I went to bed. I was so, <laughs> I was so chuffed. That, that must great have been... Great feeling. Yeah, that must have been a great feeling. And then I uh, went to Adelaide to play in that first test and uh, they didn't exactly have the most threatening opening uh, bowlers in those days. So it's a bit different these mm. days. And I managed to get 81 and um, and then I went down to sweep Prasanna and Col Egar, I'll never forget this, he was bowling around the wicket. On 81, I've taken a big stride down the track and swept, missed it, got hit in the pad and to my horror, I saw the finger go up. So uh, anyway... Did you feel a sense of disappointment then or of excitement that you'd made 81? Yeah, but I think more the latter yeah. than disappointment. Just to know that uh, you were able to make a few runs and not be completely overawed. You mentioned when you were working your way through the Shield that you worked out what you needed to do to play at that top level. Was that technical or was that mental? Mental. Yeah. Yeah, mental. Although I, I guess I was always a front foot player. My father had taught me to that the drive was the, the thing, and so did Jack Ryder, who was chairman of selectors for Victoria and also an Australian selector. Get on the front foot, lad, you know, which was all very well when Froggy Thompson was hitting <laughs> the pitch halfway down. Um, but I, I think I must have forgotten what I learned early because I, I think back on my career now, and I reckon if I had my time over again, I'd be a different player. I, I used to get a bit impatient. And the one thing you can't do is disrespect the opposition and think you're going to be carting them all over the field. It just doesn't happen at the top level. Mm. And I think I would have, I would have been a bit more circumspect and just played every ball on its merits and learned just to rotate the strike a bit better rather than thinking you could stand up there and smash fours all the time. Where did that come from, do you think? Because you always talked about as being this very stylish batsman. So did you sort of believe that, that you had to play that way? And, and did people try and change you mm. and you didn't listen or you were never really I never, to? You, ne- you really didn't get coached. Uh, you know, nowadays the squad is dripping with former players who are telling you how you should play and where your weaknesses are and, you know, the analysis is phenomenal. In those days you really had to work it out for yourself. Either it was uh, just by osmosis or people had actually said, you need to play attractive cricket. So I guess my first instinct was after, you know, the first five, ten minutes was to play shots. But I think you need to understand the conditions every time you come in. Sometimes that's easy and things just flow. But other times you really have to grind pretty hard and you might find the first hour really tough. But you've got to work your way through it. If you don't, you can just toss your wicket away and, uh, and the bowler laughs. Well, I hope you're enjoying our chat with former Australian Test batsman and MCC President Paul Sheehan. We've got more great cricketing stories coming soon with an upcoming episode celebrating the memorable 1981 Boxing Day Test match between Australia and the West Indies and the incredible feats of Kim Hughes and Dennis Lilly. 
Hughes at his best could play some of the most extraordinary shots, the cover driving, the straight driving. When he was at his best, he really was imperious. And that, as you say, against a phenomenal attack, that was a remarkable performance. Roberts holding Croft and Garner was the quartet for that test match. It's scary even saying their names together. I was with Dennis Lilly the other day, and we got talking about it. He, he reckons Moynings was the greatest thing he's ever saw against possibly the greatest attack that's ever been. That's coming up soon. But in the meantime, it's back to our interview with Paul Sheehan, whose 31-match test career included two tours of England and a gruelling tour of India and South Africa in 1969-70. Yeah, tough tour, India-South Africa. That was about five and a half months in total. It's, a, uh, it's, a, it's hard to get a grip on it, it now, is, isn't it? It is, yeah. And uh, if we were living in a bubble, it wouldn't have been quite so bad. <laughs> the conditions were to euphemise, uh, testing, challenging. But we got through it, uh, and I managed to make 100 in the second test. It was an enormous thrill to actually get 100. So where are we here? Which we're at Kanpur, Yep. where we, we actually stayed in the local palace, which sounds grand. It does. Uh, and it would have been grand 100 years prior. <laughs> right. But uh, there'd been a little bit of decay around the edges in the succeeding century. You had to, you had to be pretty determined over there because they, you know, the Indian crowds love their cricket and they love their local team, and you know it was nothing so, so to be same back then. Was oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know you'd be batting there and there'd be crowds in the outer with uh, metal tins trying to flash them in your eyes as you as you're trying to play, all all to support their local team, I suppose. It that was one of the best experiences I think I've had going to India, just seeing a totally different culture, living a totally different way with phenomenal disparity in in wealth and standing in the community and yet generally very peaceful existence, which was impressive to me, I'd have to say. I mean, I'd led a pretty sheltered lifestyle and hadn't spent a lot of time uh, overseas, although I'd been lucky enough to go to England uh, two years before, but India I grew to love. It's a great country with great people. Mm. I, uh, I've been back a couple of times since not playing cricket, and they are equally welcoming and warm and embracing. It's a magnificent place. And I had the good fortune to tour New Zealand, India, South Africa, England twice. Mm. Didn't ever go to the West Indies, and that was a bit of a disappointment to some extent not to go but it was at a time when I'd been given a career opportunity there was no money for players in cricket I had a young family I wasn't living in Melbourne and I was on the road three nights a week to practice so that was all a bit challenging and uh, I had an opportunity with the career that um, I didn't think at that time I could afford to pass up. Just before we Get to that stage, then what about England? You, you didn't have as much success against no. England. Oh, the tracks moved around too much, and they were too shrewd, the Pom bowlers. They, you know, it was astonishing, really, that fellows who, if they came out here, would find life really tough. And, you know, blokes like Matthew Hayden, etc., would smash them into the next country. They could just toddle up to the wicket and roll the arm over it rank medium pace and the ball would be darting everywhere and we had a we had a wet summer in 1968 and that was 
too much for me. I think I got bowled. I don't know how many times I batted, but I would have been bowled at least a third of the times. <laughs> so it was a. It should have been a good learning experience, but I don't know that it made enough of an impact on me to think I I need to work out how to deal with this, as distinct from just feeling sorry for myself that I couldn't make any runs. You you did make a, a test century though here. Yes, at the G, and it's it it is a special feeling making a hundred on your home ground. That was against Pakistan and Inti, Inti Kaab Alam, who was um, the captain at that stage, and a more than respectable leggy. I'll thank him till I go to my grave. He dropped me on 66, <laughs> and uh, I managed to, to get 100 in concert with Johnny Benno, which was equally nice to do it with someone who, whom you respected and what, liked. What was that feeling like then to, to do that at home? Yeah, well, the crowd reaction was pretty good. I mean, at the time when I was sort of trying to make my way as a cricketer, uh, the crowd here at the MCG were fantastic to me. They they supported me at every turn, and uh, you know, if I did happen to make some runs, and I I was reasonably successful for Victoria, they gave me enormous support. So when I got a hundred in that Test match, there was a terrific reaction. You turned from a middle order batsman to an opener. So mm. was that? Was that just because of the circumstances of the team or did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? Um, well, it was, a, it was a weenie bit of both. I, I knew I was struggling to hang on in the middle order uh, and in 1972 when we went to England and I went for the second time, uh, we really didn't have a particularly stable opening partnership. So I did get a chance to open up down at um, Sussex in a, in a um, county match and I had a reasonably successful game at Sussex and that got me in to play the last two tests, which I enjoyed. And it was a... If I had a memorable series, particularly, 1972 was it. It was the emergence of the new team under Ian Chappell, you know, Greg, his brother, Dougie Walters, Dennis Lilly, uh, Bob Massey, Ashley Mallett, Rod Marsh, pretty fair side... <laughs> It was a it was a great thrill to draw that series eventually to all by winning the fifth test at the Oval. You mentioned a few great names there. A lot of those names were just emerging then, but who are the, who are the names and the, the personalities that stand out to you when you look back on that time? Oh, clearly Ian stamped his authority on the team without any doubt. He was a an excellent leader. He used to rub a few people up the wrong way, but he was a an excellent leader of men. If you'd had him as a, a lieutenant in the trenches at Gallipoli, you'd have been quite happy, I think. He just had that capacity to embrace people at the right time and to give them a challenge, but then encourage them to reach heights that they might not have thought they could have reached. At times, off the field, he he rubbed the opposition up the wrong way, but that was no problem, really. Um, Greg was a different sort of person altogether, mm, totally. uh, but a highly intelligent man who was a most beautiful player. Um, Dougie Walters, well, the stories about Dougie are legendary. They're all true, yeah. uh, which is unlike a lot of other people. Stack was a perfect vice-captain, uh, and I'd played a lot of cricket with Stack here in Victoria. and uh, He vice-captained the Australian side, had a different approach from Ian, but together they worked exceedingly well. Dennis, well, Dennis was Dennis. You know, these 
these demigods have the capacity just to lift themselves out of the ruck when when their backs to the wall. I think everybody who was at that West Indies test here when, uh, you know, the West Indies mm. went to stumps at four for ten. Four for ten. And he's knocked over Viv Richards with the last ball of the day. Can never forget what the really, not just the gifted, but the really uh, determined, gutsy, courageous players can do. And Dennis was one of those. And his influence on the side for a long time was um, crucial. And it's it's interesting, you know, you play against these fellows during the season. Mm. Then you've got to come together and blend yourself as a team. And that, I think, was one of the one of the bits of genius of Ian Chappell. You retired from Test cricket or from cricket at the age of 27. Do you regret that at all or wish you didn't have to? Uh, yes, in some respects, yes. Uh, but I made what I thought was a very clever comment when I finished by saying that I was a, a schoolmaster who played cricket rather than a cricketer who taught. And I, I think by the time I'd started teaching and by that stage I'd been teaching for about four or five years I actually loved it and I knew that was what I wanted to do um, and I at that stage I wasn't sure I was a fixture in the side so there were no particularly good financial rewards in it I was offered a job that I wanted I cut my losses and said I'll I won't go to the West Indies I'll take this job I didn't think it was fair to say to the head of the school at the time, yes, I'll take your job, but I won't be there for five months. Um, it's always hard. I think it's always hard for anybody when they're retiring from something they really love and and taking themselves out from people whose company they really enjoy. It's always hard for the first 12 months, 18 months. But after that, you, you get used to it. You get on with the next thing. And I, Again, I had the extremely good fortune to... Um, take up a bit of commentary for about a decade afterwards. So I didn't totally lose touch with the game. Just going back a step, what did your dad and what did your parents think of you becoming a test cricketer? Thrilled and completely cheesed off when I gave it away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, look, my my father had been a a pretty good but not outstanding club cricketer and uh, he lived his life vicariously through me, so... I fulfilled his dreams in a sense. And so when I gave it away, uh, no, that didn't please him much at all. Was that awkward for you or was that Oh, okay? a weeny bit awkward, yeah, because I, you know, in those days you were a bit beholden to your parents. Mm. And I, I was fully aware that they'd sacrificed a lot to let me do what I wanted to do, play cricket. So... Uh, it took a little bit of thought to say no. How did you find the commentary? Did, was that a good way to ease out of the game? Doing the yeah, in some respects it was. And in those days, cricket was really, in Australia, was really contained to the Christmas holidays for somebody who was a teacher. Yep. So it was ideal. Perfect, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I uh, used to comment next to um, Norman May, who was interesting. He... Had trouble seeing some of the things. I think <laughs> you know you felt you had to try and be as gentle as possible to correct what he <laughs> what he thought he'd seen. But you know names like Alan McGilvray, Lindsay Hassett, who had a phenomenal capacity without a note to just fill in the summary at the end of mm. the day and not miss a beat. Yeah, and then you met all the uh, 
the test match special people who came over from the UK to comment on radio. Uh, yeah, it was, that was a great thrill. So we've heard about Paul Sheehan, the test cricketer and commentator, but maybe his most significant contribution was in education. I finished my study at university, tied to the education department for three years, and I taught for two years at Noble Park High School and loved it. There were some great kids there, some really great kids. And, you know, you sort of got a bit sad when you realised that all they were there for was what happened in the classroom. There was no sport after school. There were no activities after school, to the point where... A couple of the older ones knew that I was playing a bit of baseball in the winter. Uh, they came to me and said, uh, you know, do you mind taking us for a bit of practice after school? And I thought, how sad's that? And and the, the headmaster of the day was standing on the boundary line, tapping his toe on the ground, and he called me in the next day, and he said, you can't do that. And I said, why not? He said, the cleaners have got to lock up by 4.15. And I thought, how... Bloody anti-educational was mm. that. So um, the kids were what sustained me. They were they were fantastic kids. Then uh, I was trying to buy a house and couldn't afford one. Could only afford one in Geelong. So we, I transferred to Newcombe High School. Spent a year there, and that was that was quite a good year. Although I think the boss was better at growing petunias than he was in leading the school. Um, and that during that year, I was picked to go to England. That was 1972. So I was away for a good four and a half months, I think. I came back and the headmaster of Geelong Grammar offered me a job. And uh, I, that's what really caused me to think about whether I kept playing cricket or not. So in the end, I decided, yes, I will. So I, um, I accepted the job. And I started at Geelong Grammar in January of the following year and I got a letter from the education department and the letter said, uh, your agreement was that you would work for the state for three years. You've worked for two years, five months, 28 days and four hours or something like that. <laughs> you, owe the, you owe the Victorian government $640. And I thought, my God. That's enough to buy a house. How am I going to pay that? So seizing the initiative, I actually wrote to the Deputy Premier in those days, Lindsay Thompson, who was an absolute cricket nut. And not only that, but had the most phenomenal memory for stats and facts. Great man, Lindsay Thompson. And I wrote to him and said, look, I'm, I had no idea that I would, um, I would have to pay back... Uh, money that I'd foregone or had been paid, sorry, when I was away on leave. So he, um, he wrote back a, a letter saying, uh, Dear Paul, this is the state's problem, not yours. Forget it. Right. No, I was grateful to him <laughs> forever after. <laughs> no wonder you thought he was a great man. Uh, yeah, exactly. I started at Geelong Grammar and, again, I was given uh, opportunities there that I loved. I coached the footy side. I ran a boarding house uh, in the middle of my 10 years there. I had a year and a half in the UK at a school. Um, so I was exceedingly grateful to them. 
then I was offered a job as one of the two deputies at St Peter's in Adelaide and I thought, yeah, we'll be there for five or six years and then an opportunity came up at my old school for the principal's job and I thought, well, I'd rather have somebody have to beat me to the punch to get the job than not apply. So I applied and much to my surprise, I got it. Uh, and then from there I had uh, 10 years and came to Melbourne Grammar mm. had 14 to and finish it off. I can still see in your face when you're looking back through those times your passion for, for what you did. Uh, I think teaching is one of the most noble professions there is. I mean, I, I regard highly broadcasting, of course. <laughs> of course but you do. <laughs> but Don't worry, no one's ever accused me of being noble, Paul, so... <laughs> It is a very noble calling and I, I admire pretty well everyone I know who's been in teaching. Um, for some it's been hell because they weren't really committed to it and didn't love kids. You've got to love seeing development in young people and boy, do you see development from prep grade through to year 12. Uh, and to think that you might play a bit of a role in preparing those kids for what awaits them in adult life is a great reward and a great thrill. Is it instinctive or is it something that you learn either in school or as you go? A bit of both, I think. Um, you, you do absorb example, or at least I did. Uh, I was lucky enough when I was at university to be in college at Ormond and the master of the college in those days was... Um, then Dr. Uh, Davis McKackie, and he later became Governor Governor. of Victoria. He was a magnificent man who had all of the qualities that you would want young kids to have without being a wowser. And uh, uh, I observed him at very close quarters, and I think he probably had as much of an influence on me as a person as anyone has. Um, So I think... Part of it's instinctive. You've got to like people, and I think some humans don't like other humans for some reason or other, but others do. And if you if you do like people uh, and you've got a positive, op- optimistic approach to things, you'll often fire the enthusiasm of young kids that you thought were, you know, brain dead. Um, and it's as much capturing their imagination as it is expounding what's in a textbook Mm. and if you can I I remember a phrase in uh, Sir James Darling's autobiography he was one of our great headmasters out here headmaster of Geelong Grammar and then chairman of the ABC he said that the secret of teaching is to light the inextinguishable flame (laughs) and it's that's a beautiful Mm. encapsulation of what teaching's about so I can see that in teaching, but what about as being a headmaster or a principal? How, how do you do that and, and connect? Is it Are you inspiring a, a whole collective or is it still a one-on-one individual thing? Well, I reckon those people who've uh, read Jim Collins' Good to Great will understand what I mean when I say you've got to get the right people on the bus. That's the secret. Mm. You can't do it all yourself, and if you think you can, you're sadly mistaken. You've got to get the right people on the bus and then get them doing what is their passion rather than thinking that they have to then fit a structure or a mould. Because you can you can teach kids what they need in adult life through any discipline. 
if you've got the right approach. So it's a matter for the head really not to think that they need to be, um, you know, an inspiring leader like Churchill. They've got to get the right people around them who are dealing with students on a 24-7 basis. And if you get that, it's, it's amazing what you can achieve. And do you, I imagine part of the satisfaction is people getting in touch with you and saying how much they appreciated what yeah. you did. Have you had that over the journey? Yeah, yeah I have. I mean, I, you don't want to blow your own trumpet too much, but, um, yeah, it's kids do... Blow, blow away. <laughs> kids do appreciate what you do for them if you show an interest in them. I mean, half of them are just hanging out for somebody to take an interest in them. And if they get that feeling, they'll often fire themselves up. Mm. I think one of the things I learned um, a bit late, and I wish I'd learned it earlier when I was teaching, was a lot of the kids sitting in front of you in a classroom are a hell of a lot smarter than you are. They might know as much, but they're a lot smarter. Mm. And I think to you know a couple of kids I taught whom I didn't necessarily highly regard, one of whom, whose name I won't mention, but he'll know if he listens to this podcast who it is, who is now uh, one of the top five blood cancer specialists in the world, not just Australia, sat in my year 11 class and I keep thinking now, God, I wonder whether I actually taught him anything or whether (laughs) he knew it all anyway. Uh, Yeah, you, you, you need to have... You need to try and develop the sort of humility that uh, enables you to understand that a lot of kids are a lot smarter than you and you are simply trying to point them in the right direction. Became the president here of the of the MCC. That It's a great honour for one thing. It, what, what was that like for you? Oh, enormous honour. Um, you know, I'd played all my club cricket here at Melbourne. Um, the president at the time, Don Cordner, who's... Shadow still looms large here at the MCG, invited me in 1989, I think it was, to join the committee. I had a a long time on the committee um, before they introduced the the practice that you stepped down after nine years. Uh, And I was lucky enough to be asked to take on a vice presidency after a while and then to have the mandatory four years as president. And that was a fantastic time because this is, it's such an icon in, in the city but also across the globe. And to think that um, you become its sort of titular head in a way uh, is a phenomenal honour. And I hope that, uh, you know, the members didn't reel in horror when that happened. And I, because I thought particularly... This is not just an icon in a, a global sporting sense, but it is also a club of members. And one of the things that was important to me was to just try to make sure the members still felt as though they were important around the place. And it wasn't to make it exclusive, because it's not an exclusive club. Um, you don't need... You need a nominator and a seconder. You don't, they, you don't need referees, uh, and you can be... Nominated at birth, so nobody knows what your character's like at birth. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, you know, unless you disgrace yourself along the way, you you will remain a member. And you must have seen some great events here, other than just footy and cricket during that time as well. Yes, yes, indeed. Although I think the thing that lives in my memory more than anything else was the Olympic Games of 
1956. Again, I was only 10, uh, but coming and seeing... I only ever known him as A. Ferreira da Silva, winning the, the triple jump over in front of us as we were seated in the outer, will be a memory that lives long. Um, but the uh, uh, the 175th here on the ground was an amazing event as well. And uh, again, people rise to the occasion of those sorts of celebrations, and I think that will loom large in the memory of everyone who was lucky enough to come to it. And the one thing I did forget to ask you about, which I'd be shocked if I didn't, was your, your, your district cricket time with Melbourne and I think playing a couple of couple of winning couple teams. Of premierships, yeah. yes. What, what, what were they like? What not, was that like? Not as, not as many premierships as I think we should have won. We were often the team that finished, if not on top of the ladder, then second, but then fell at the final hurdle. Uh, we did win a couple and, of course... That's a great thrill because, you know, at whatever level you're playing, um, there are players who are your colleagues who won't go beyond that level. So for them, that's their pinnacle. And if they can come away from that with a premiership badge, then you've done something for them. Yeah, I was lucky enough to play in a couple and made a reasonably good score in one of them. So How much? That was a thrill. Uh, 189, I think. No, I don't think I know exactly, <laughs> exactly how many. You're a cricketer. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you would have had some good battles with Stacky, wouldn't you? In yeah, we did. Level. Yeah. <laughs> he was one of those blokes you hated as an opponent but loved as a teammate because uh, he was a fantastic competitor and a hell of a good player. Mm. And he's probably one bloke who would say he maximised his ability uh, because he was such a good competitor. Um, nothing... It, he always rose to the battle, never shrank from the battle. That's a good Collingwood man for you. <laughs> Actually, I, I know you've touched on this already. You said he, he maximised his ability, but I think it was Bill Laurie I was reading who said that perhaps you didn't. I think that's a fair comment. I mean, it sounds as though I'm boasting to say that. I don't mean <laughs> that. I think if I look back on my career, I would say there are some disappointments, and I think um, particularly following what I'd done as a schoolboy and maybe with Melbourne and perhaps even with Victoria, um, I think I wasn't as successful at test cricket as I, as people expected to me and as I thought I should have been. And it was partly due to that impetuosity, I think, and, mm. and maybe not respecting uh, the opposition bowlers enough, thinking I could get away with shots that really weren't on. Well, Paul, it's been wonderful... To chat, there's so much that you have achieved. Uh, you can look back with great pride, I'm sure, of what you've done, what you did on the field here at the MCG and other grounds around the world, certainly off the field here at this uh, great club, but, but also in life and your, your great passion for, for teaching and education. Thank you for sharing some of those memories and thoughts with us today here at the G. Oh, Hutto, it's been a great pleasure, a great pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the stories behind the many talents of former Australian batsman, leading educator and ex-MCC president Paul Sheehan. We're so excited about the prospect of getting back to watch sport at the MCG once again. And to help get you in the mood, soon we're going to relive one of the great days of cricket at the ground. Boxing Day 1981. The countdown is on. We'll see you soon at the gym.